and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week. Please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at austinarttalk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. John Paul Caponegro is a world-renowned fine art photographer and expert in digital media who writes, lectures, teaches, and leads workshops ranging from digital printing, creativity, capturing the fall foliage in Maine, to photographing Antarctica, and many other field workshops all over the planet. So, of course, getting to interview John Paul was at the top of my wish list while visiting Maine for the month of August. I wanted to keep producing the podcast, so why not try for one of my favorite photographers? As I say in the interview, I've been following his work for years and have always been impressed with how generous he is with his teachings and processes. This is not a technical discussion about Photoshop or about cameras or f-stops. We ended up having a fairly philosophical conversation more about nature, spirit of place, creativity, play, and how to find your own way as an artist and a human. I love how thoughtful and specific he is with his words and wisdom. It's no wonder he's a sought-after lecturer and teacher. Please enjoy this conversation recorded in John Paul's home gallery above his studio in Cushing, Maine, on a beautiful summer day. Here is John Paul. Well, John Paul, thanks for being on my podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having me up to your house. Um, we just met, well, we actually met years ago in Austin when you came and did a, a talk at UT. Yeah. But uh, I was just here last week for your open studio vid- visit, and I feel so thankful. The timing of my visit to Maine was with your studio opening and showing your new work, and I was able to connect with you, and you agreed to do this interview. I'm very thankful for your time. Synchronicity is a wonderful thing. Yeah. And, you know, I've been following you for years, and I've always been so impressed by how generous you are with all the content that you produce and all the just looking at your website, all the guidance around creativity and photography and printing and all the lectures and talks that you've done, and you lead uh, workshops all over the world to help people improve their artistry and their photography. I mean, it's just, I'm really, I'm really impressed by that. And it's so obvious to me now that I've read your, the mission that you have stated on your website, why? And if you don't mind, I'll just read that really quickly for everyone. Yeah. My life's work is dedicated to inspiring conscientious, creative interaction with our environment. Authentic creativity is the key to unlocking solutions for the most pressing issues of our times. Each of us has unique and valuable contributions to make during this important moment in history. I urge you to make yours now, and I'm here to help you. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So how long have you had such clarity around that mission? Like where did that, what is the genesis of that mission? And when was it clear to you? 15 years. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's been building for a long time. Uh, I think in so many cases we do have a soul's urge in our life and our creative extension of that life. Yeah. It's really coming down and and engaging the discipline of writing a mission and -hmm. separating that from goals and actions uh, and trying to put some clarity on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, th- I think at different times in our lives, we need to go through that process and reconsider it. So that's version, I don't know, 3.0, 5.0. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing how it might update in the future. But I, I think as you get closer to that core, you tend to not update it as much because you're, you're closer to home. Unless a major shift happens. 
I think for so many of us, we don't take the time to write a mission. Sure. Um, David Allen's book, uh, Getting Things Done, is fabulous on that. Mm-hmm. How it, is it how to make it work, how it all works? The second follow-up is actually even clearer on that whole mission, goals, actions, projects. Yeah. And I think it's very useful to look at that. I think more than ever, uh, we're faced with an embarrassing richness. There's so much information that we engage in in one year, more than more in one year than an average person would have engaged in 200 years ago in a single lifetime. Yeah. So with, with all of these opportunities and all of these resources and this constantly changing information, I, I think it's really important to get clear about what you want to do. Because otherwise you can live in a life of endless distraction and end up nowhere. Overload. <laughs> Overload. You, you got to learn when to turn these devices off and, and when to say, you know, that's really fascinating, but I'm focused on this. I, I don't have enough time to do that. I started making those decisions when I was in college. I decided... Mm. I was flirting with the idea of music, possibly professionally, watching my father do the same thing his entire career. And I'm like, you just don't have enough time. Yeah. Why don't you save this? Just be an amateur at it. Just do it for the love of doing it. Continue it. Let it enrich your life. But take all those other pressures and aspirations off the table. And it, and it really changed my relationship to sound. Mm-hmm. I'm still, I just recently started taking piano lessons all over again doesn't mean I don't want to get better, um, but better on my own terms. And it's been really nice to find a, a piano teacher, a fellow named John Merman up here, who who can honor some of that and, and kind of work with me. He says, you know, like half of our sessions are, are just talking about the creative process. Oh, yeah. you know, do you actually want to play the piano? And I said, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, you've changed my perspective on the history of Western music. And I'm learning some things that, you know, in three or four years of piano lessons with somebody else I'd never learned oh. you know, conceptually about musical theory, which is going to help me on my improvisation. So I can go home and practice scales or practice this piece of Bach by myself, but I can't interact with you and learn more of that richness that you have to offer if if we're just fumbling through my rather mediocre finger fumbling yeah you know so Mm -hmm. and again my goal was not to learn 36 pieces of Bach or play them perfectly so many other people have done that so so much better than I ever will I just don't have the time yeah Um, it's not that I don't have the passion not that I couldn't pursue it further but I think ultimately my passions lie other places That makes me, if you don't mind, that makes me uh, think of a quote of your dad's that I found. And it's like the more quotes I found of your dad or read about your dad, I feel like you are your father's son, you know, for sure. And my mother's. (laughs) And I am my own person. Yeah, exactly. All All those things. Um, He said, uh, in order to be a good photographer, you need to work more on your emotions than you do on your technique. Hmm. So music is an avenue where it, enlivens my feelings it feeds and nourishes my emotional system and if i have that as my assistant then what i see takes on something from the heart i'm there yeah i agree so do you use music in the same way does that nourish you in the same way are there other things that nourish you yeah there are many other things but i do use music in that way and then the decision to take up a discipline and be an amateur at it instead of a perfectionist um, really reorients the goals yeah and my goal is to be present and I find that I can tune into where I'm at, what's happening in the moment, a lot faster at the keyboard, even though I have very limited facility, than, uh, say, photography or painting, where I have a lot of facility. Hmm. And fewer of the the uh, habitual routines, the automatic processes, the uh, goals. It's got to be a certain way. It's got to be you know this or it's not worth doing. You know, it's got to be yeah. good enough. <laughs> where where those things don't exist when you just sit down and say, I'd like to be with sound right now. You don't even worry about calling it music. Get, get rid of the whole label of good. Just real, present. Mm-hmm. It's a different thing. And then so we have to ask ourselves when we make our beautifully crafted objects, let's say in photography, I think photography is one of the worst. So it was well crafted. But was it well seen? And were you there? And mm. what did you bring? to that event. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to pass off a well-focused fa- photograph as a good photograph because it's well-focused. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's the <laughs> All the rules, right? <laughs> two, two of my favorite quotes, Ansel Adams, there's nothing worse than a sharp picture of a fuzzy concept. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> a little clearer than than Cartier-Bresson's sharpness is a bourgeois concept. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have cameras that can focus for us, but focus is an entirely different thing, and so is um, angle of view is an entirely different thing from point of view. And I think working on the emotional connection, your point of view, how you see the world, this is an opportunity to to look at yourself looking. And so there's a lot of self-discovery. And in great many of our patterns of thinking and seeing of being are inherited. We're we're, We're taught to be certain ways. We're given certain kinds of resources and not others. Ways of perceiving the world. Biases. Right. Like you're going out this weekend to go uh, <laughs> encounter these ancient arts of uh, yeah. building shelter, change, finding yeah. sustenance in the forest by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> As we were saying, those those were things we were taught many generations ago and are no longer taught today. So we have a different relationship with land. And as you claim those skills, you start to change your relationship with land and ourselves. That seems very relevant to the work that's surrounding us right now, your most recent Series very much, yeah, yeah, and in some ways, I'm not sure which book I need to finish or do I need to start this other one about mm. that. And I'd like to keep it short and practical, but just a celebration of ways of interacting with the land that many of us are not encouraged to do or don't give ourselves permission to do because we've grown up or because that's seen as primitive or we've never really tried it, so we don't see the value in it. Yeah, I've heard you talk about play, and I, th- I feel like that is just something that's totally missing in a lot of adults' lives. <laughs> I mean, my studio in Austin is right next to a school, an elementary school, and the kids over there are screaming bloody murder. You'd think they were being killed, <laughs> but they're just out there having fun, running around, and it's like, you're not allowed to do that as an, an adult. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know? And, and I get it. We've, we've learned to compartmentalize, and in certain contexts, you know, if you and I were screaming bloody murder, people would worry. <laughs> so where are the cues to say, no, we're just having fun over here. It's just a game. Yeah. Um, but to be able to find ways that we could be free and not compartmentalize it so much, and to find others that we could play with, uh, would be wonderful. How do you incorporate play into your life? Or loosening up or not being so rigid? Um, pitifully. I, <laughs> I have a, a decent sense of humor. I think it's a survival skill. Yeah. My wife has a really wonderful sense of humor. She's very playful. So on a day-to-day basis, there's a reinforcement of, of holding things more lightly. Yeah. Uh, I certainly do that with uh, my work and the work that we're sitting in right now in this gallery all made with an iPhone. My iPhone was my play camera. It was my yeah. opportunity to play. And so I know it's dangerous now turning it into something that is more finished, has is seen as professional finished mm-hmm. work. But it's really not the tool, it's the mindset. As long as I'm reminded to, to play and to experiment, as long as I can find cues and tools to help me do that, it'll be just fine. Um, do you I, struggle with perfectionism? Oh, God. <laughs> are you hard on yourself oh uh, yeah because <laughs> i am oh man i struggle with that um very much you know and and there's a certain amount of um productivity facility craft subtlety depth that can come from it uh it's also easy to uh get stuck in a rut so you gotta ask yourself when is when did your root your groove become a rut how do you get yourself out of that rut and into a new groove over time Mm-hmm. And just watch when it serves you and when it's not serving you. And when essential qualities like being there and authenticity are there. And those are hard to describe because you, you can't quantify them easily. Mm-hmm. I wish that we could find ways to describe that more specifically in our culture. Which so many times we quantify everything. you got metrics on social networks and... Just like that Robin Williams scene in uh, Dead Poet Society. If you graph creativity on an XY axis, yeah. <laughs> tear that page out of the book and he has the rest of the class throw it in the bin. Yeah. It's, it's almost in our Western materialist view that if we can't uh, get our hands around, if we can't quantify it, if we can't put a number to it, then it's not valid, relevant, and in some ways doesn't exist. And yet, how about the feeling Dad's talking about in a, in a piano piece? We didn't play a piece of Mozart to count the number of notes or the spaces in between. We wanted to have an experience, and those qualities 
are very important. And being able to discuss the different qualities we each sense, to be able to bridge one individual to another or one culture to another, and talk about meaning that we fashion from all of this data is essential these days. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one world and everybody's talking with each other, but we're not coming from the same place. And it's not just that we occupy a different space or <laughs> have a different color space in our eyes. Yeah. That's not it. We just have very different ways of thinking about ourselves and about the world, which could be a wonderful thing to celebrate. I and mean, isn't that kind of fascinating? So how do we dig in there and make some substantial, deep observations about that mm-hmm. uh, without uh, passing it off as, well, that's just your trip, man. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm okay, you're okay. <laughs> and they're not necessarily feeling that way. Yeah. <laughs> and adults forget to play their way through that and start taking it really seriously and start wars. Mm. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very interesting time. Yeah. <laughs> pick yeah, yeah, pick I, your apocalypse. Right. Well, you have talked a lot about interconnectivity and just how literally connected the whole world is and we all are, but we don't necessarily perceive that a lot or we see ourselves as separate. Yeah. And I think that's one barrier. And I also think that um, we need to be a little less um, selfish, egocentric, Mm. a little more open and a little less threatened, perhaps a little more comfortable with where we are so that we can see something that's very different from us and say, it's okay. It's okay for them to be that different, and it doesn't threaten me. I'm okay with who I am, and isn't isn't that interesting? Now, mm. now what could we do with that? Rather than uh, putting up the defenses too quickly. Um, we, we really, literally just recently got this new neural network, the web. Yeah. And we're all trying to figure out how to work that out. What, what do you do with that? And there's a lot of things we're learning to do with it, and then we're making all of these different social experiments to see if that's the way we want to play together. So I, I think, yes, our sense of self is challenged these days, but also it's an awesome opportunity to expand that and to get really clear about what you want to do and, uh, and be that. And isn't your work somewhat about inspiring people to see that connectivity, that interconnectivity? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Very much. Um, a lot of my work is about looking at looking. And so I'm I'm starting here first, looking at how I look, and realizing what I bring to the picture, and and challenging myself to see in other ways as well. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to uh, uh, move on to a different subject or a different set of uh, concerns in order to just be versatile for the sake of being versatile. My passion is nature, and I feel that I'm part of nature. Yeah, we are. We are nature. We evolved on this planet with everything else, but we've just gotten to this point where we're dominating everything and uh, manipulating it to such extremes that it's, yeah, it's not sustainable for sure. It's been a long couple thousand year march to that idea. There are still cultures on this planet that don't look at it that way. They don't look at themselves that way. But it's buried in our language. Nature, it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) rather than we. You're using the the appropriate word, I think. We, ours. And if we really looked at the natural world around us, which include the animals, the plants, and even the earth, the water, the sky, as us, we would treat ourselves differently. Yeah. Right? Yes. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, So it's a radical mind shift, but uh, it's not new. I I think uh, there's so many primal cultures uh, still in existence that... uh, have some of the keys about how you can interact with that and some of the benefits to uh, being that way that uh, I hope we don't lose before we learn those lessons. There's a great uh, PBS documentary. Uh, might have been called Civilization, but at any rate, it ended on the disappearance of culture and language these days. How there's uh, this kind of vast leveling and that uh, they were discussing these cultures that are disappearing as uh, rainforests of the spirit and that what we were losing are, are different ways of being human hmm. yeah. or of human being that even though they don't necessarily share our technological sophistication, they may have many things to offer us emotionally, psychically. Yeah. There's probably so many things that we've lost. We'd, we're not even aware of sure. already. Yeah. Species of plants and animals and bugs and everything. Yep. 
one of the great ages of extinction. We're, we're enjoying our time during it. Yeah. I'm wondering what kinds of questions are you trying to answer with this current body of work or what have been answered or what have you found out about yourself? Hmm. One of the big ones that I'm, I'm asking more recently is, is what's the spirit of a particular place? I've, I've really felt that there's a, there's a Latin word for it. It comes back, back from Greek, you know, the, a world spirit, the anima mundi. There's a, a sense of uh, Gaia, mm-hmm. which has been adopted by biologists like Lovelock, who posit the theory that the Earth is one self-regulating organism, not that different from the ancient Greeks, yeah. mm-hmm. pre-Aristotle, yeah. or the Gaelic cultures before it. But then there was also this notion of um, another Latin term, genius loci, or the spirit of a place, or even a thing. So trying to reconcile this more universal spirit with a, a local fragment piece, part of the puzzle. And in a sense, that's personal identity as well. If I feel myself as being part of something much, much larger, but I also feel like I have my own authentic individual spirit, my own contribution, mm. my own song, vibration, frequency, poetry, however many ways you would like to describe it. I'm sure there are many more ways than that to describe it. Yeah. What is the interaction between that much larger thing that we participate or are part of and, and our own singularity? What kinds of responsibilities do we have? What kinds of opportunities do we have? How can we, how can we see ourselves more deeply? How can we fan those flames and grow them hotter and stronger? So I'm looking at specific places and land as, as in, in many ways a metaphor for that, or at least those thoughts are informing me, but I'm also really interested in So when you come into a certain location, just one little region, where does that region start and begin? And it's a rather arbitrary place, though there are things like the edge of the water or the top of a mountain or a cliff, or there are these physical barriers that cross culturally, it would make some sense to think of these as as containers. And you go to these different places and they do feel very different. Going to Antarctica is an entirely different experience than walking through the woods in Maine. Entirely different. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just, uh, and, and so... That sensation, that total experience, that spirit of place. What what is the spirit of one place, and and how could one see it a little more deeply, participate in it a little more fully, come to know it a little more closely? Mm. It's very easy to uh, survey with a camera. You know, you hold your camera out at arm's length or in your arm, and you just see the picture. I think a lot more uh, research and interaction. Uh, is useful, you know. Touch the place, walk the place, breathe the place, taste the place, smell it. Get all of those senses supercharged. So you get a much more interesting, much richer, fuller experience. And I think if you do that, it gets into your work. It gets into you for sure. Hmm. And if it gets into you, and you're the one who is really making that work, then it, it can't help but have consequences. Ripples are produced. So then I ask myself, if I've been to these places. Have I influenced the spirit of that place, at least in that moment? What happens when I walk or uh, participate in that place differently? How long, how long does that last? But even if it doesn't last any more than when I'm there, I change the place. I'm changed by it. Yeah, and did you see it in a way that maybe no one else has ever seen it or looked at it so specifically? Yeah, and I think that has happened. But that's because I come with an open mind and a certain set of skills and an agenda to do that. Mm, yeah. You know, right? So I'm willing to push myself. I'm willing to look in new ways. I realize what my habits are. I want to try and step out of those and see if those still serve me. If something else might serve us better. And just because my images look different doesn't necessarily mean that I was different. <laughs> it means, <laughs> means I produce something that looks different. Yeah. You know, there's a real difference between style and essence. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm on point for that as well. But I think both are happening. And you're sharing potentially a piece of your experience of that place with someone else, and then they're seeing it through their own lens and perspective. Yes. And sometimes I see my, my work and myself differently as a result of what somebody else shares after they've experienced the work I produced. Hmm. And it's really fun. In many cases, I'm, I'm shooting these during workshops 
where there are many of us experiencing yeah. a dozen of us experiencing the same place. One of the most inspiring things about those workshops is to be able to see all the different responses. Some of that is just observing each other in the field. Some of that is seeing the kinds of images that we've made in the same locations at the same time, but often they're, they're quite different. That really amazes me that that's possible. I mean, if like, I just imagine we're all in the same boat, let's say. Yeah. It's like a, such a small point of reference. How could everyone's work be different? It's one of the reasons I got into <laughs> photography in the first place. You know, you, th you think, okay, so drawing. You, know, you draw anything, there's a blank canvas, but, you know, with a photograph, you have to point the lens out there, and you're, as Frederick Sommer says, at the mercy of your experience. You know, you, you pick a certain point in space, a certain angle of view, and decide which 125th of a second or longer yeah. to take. And th only so many variables there it's very direct, and, and so you, you really do have those questions about how can 12 people go to one location and make 12 different photographs? And if they're all going to the same location, standing in the same place, and using the tools in the same way, under the same laws of composition, mm. with the same intent to come back and, and make a clickbait, yeah. <laughs> then, then they probably are going to come back with the same images or very similar. But if they ask some questions about what they really want, if their goals are different, if they're in touch with themselves and, and realize they're bringing their life's experience to it and, and having specific experiences, they, they might even interact with the place and themselves differently, then uh, you start to make much more authentic work. And I, I think by extension, even, even if you do observe the same <laughs> rules of composition, you end up making very different kinds of statements. Mm. It's very much like the, that great uh, Kurosawa movie, Yojimbo, mm -hmm. where there's one event and four or five different observers all telling the story slightly differently. I, I think we kind of have to triangulate our experience. But I think if people start making more authentic work, it, is, it tends to look and feel differently. I, I would be careful of saying that you need to make images that instantly look different from one another. And I think we need to be able to uh, read the text of the image a little more carefully, like you might look at the same... You, you might look at a book of Faulkner and Hemingway and without reading the words, think, gosh, they look similar. Mm -hmm. Until you actually read the words. And, oh, these are actually quite different. Yeah, And I think that's possible in in photography, even documentary photography. Salgado is a very different read than Noctway. Yeah. It's a very different sensibility in the author, even though they've got very similar objectives and are using similar tools, observing similar practices within their craft, trying to achieve similar results, advocacy. Uh, and yet, when you look at their images, they each have their own authentic way with those things. And it, it translates. I think it influences the way that we see the stories they tell. Absolutely. I'm wondering if someone, let's say, is on, on a trip with you to Antarctica, do you give people guidance towards that idea? When you go to an extraordinary place like Antarctica, one of the biggest things to overcome is being so overwhelmed with the wonder of it all. It's, mm. a, it's like walking on another planet. It, it's just... Mm. You see, I, I've been there 10 times, and I still start to struggle for words to yeah. describe the the silence, the immensity, the mystery, the changeableness, the eternity. The There's there's something about Antarctica in particular that's just hard to get your arms around, hard to get your head around, hard to get your heart around. Mm. Plus, you also are seeing such exotic things, like glaciers calving and icebergs rolling and the adorable penguin. Right. And it's a place where you would never survive, too. I mean, there's Pretty much. the danger. <laughs> the death is there, too, maybe. I don't, I don't know. I don't even think with your survival skills you, would, <laughs> you no, would survive. Not even there. There's never been an indigenous culture down there. Yeah. It, it is so overwhelming that it's easy to uh, get so caught up in, in trying to catch it all before you miss it and get all of those postcards. Hmm. And it's great to make the postcards, but did, did you settle down enough to really... Focus in on, on what you think is, is creating such an, and I use the word not in the contemporary, but the old way, awesome. I mean, yeah. Antarctica embodies awesome, and with that, a certain amount of trembling and terror. Hmm. It's sublime, but it's also fierce, and it's all of that. And it's, it's you know, <laughs> kind of like being in the presence of an angel. You watch your step. <laughs> uh, to be able to sit back and, and 
recalibrate and say, what's my experience? I, I remember on their first trip in 2005, people were just scratching their heads. They'd find me at the opposite end of the boat making a little sketch or uh, just going down below or even one time not even going to shore and writing just to connect with what experience I was having. Hmm. But I was really gratified that at the end of the journey, people said, wow, JP, your images are so different. And I really feel this place in them. Great. A little bit of time to make it more personal. But I think uh, unless you have a goal to do something like that, that uh, probably won't happen. That you'll probably get distracted. If, if you don't have a set of goals, you can do anything, but where are you going to end up? So one of the things that we really encourage people to do, and I, I do all of this, these international workshops with Seth Resnick, who is quite different, and it's a wonderful synergy. His energy is very different. His skill sets are very different, and yet we have so much in common. And that, so that's very stimulating. We encourage people to create a personal project. Now, exactly what that personal project is could be a, a handmade book for hmm. their grandchildren. It could be an exhibit. It could be stock imagery. It could be a journalistic piece for Time Magazine or who knows what. What exactly they choose to do is, is up to them. But to start to give it edges and start to say, okay, let, let's produce something. Let's put our images to some use. And with that, that box then creates um, certain edges that can be used as creative springboards. So if you're telling a story, you need a beginning, middle, and end. Where do you start? And how many ways can you get images to connect with one another? And there are wonderful creative opportunities that come from that by pairing images and by moving from one image to the next and how that can all change if you change the sequence. And as you're building this structure over 10 days, that that's fairly fluid, much more fluid than, say, a, a movie where you've really scripted things in and you need certain cutscenes to get from beginning to middle and end. Right. right? You, yeah. Um, yeah. Doesn't, doesn't mean that things can't change on a movie, but generally you need things kind of tighter scary. and the continuity needs to be really tight. You need all the pieces to fit it together. Where with single images, you've, you've got an incredible amount of flexibility that way. So suddenly images that didn't seem like hero images serve a real purpose in the story, and they might actually reveal some of the, the subtext or what the story is really about or have a way of amplifying certain emotional qualities that might not have been in some of the hero images that got you started or got the viewer interested enough to turn the page or yeah. see the next slide. So helping people um, define a project and then uh, showing them skills for moving forward and and with that how do you manage those creative opportunities it, it really expands the dialogue and it gets us more into voice what is something that is more authentic rather than not necessarily original or new but authentic and how do you weigh success in in the end of that as well did you fill fulfill your personal goals did you did you have a really fulfilling rich experience not hey did you get uh, 12 images that somebody else would say would be five star images <laughs> yeah, it, it redefines success on your own terms. It seems like the kind of assignment you could give to yourself anywhere in your backyard. <laughs> well, that's kind of why we do it because we do the homework on our workshops, and that's what we do every time. Yeah, you know, and this is all what we're sitting in. All the portfolios that are downstairs, all the magazine, all the little catalogs that are on the piano over here. Mm -hmm. Those are all you know self-assigned projects. I yeah, think one of the dangers is people will start something and not finish it. Um, there's usually a frustrating point about three quarters of the way through where people start to get frustrated. They have to start to innovate. They have to start to gain new skills or become a little more versatile or push through that block, that envelope. They, they, they need something to energize it a little bit more to bring it home. That's usually the point of greatest growth. And it also opens up seeds for the future, but it's usually where people bail. So I encourage people to finish the projects they start. doesn't mean you have to get that ambitious. You don't need a hundred images in a coffee table book published by. You don't do that. You know, right. Take your own success on, but, but finish things. Or at least, I'm not really sure what the right word for it, because I, I don't really like the work is over or done or finished, as if you'll never return to it. Mm -hmm. uh, I like bringing it to a sense of fullness, completeness, depth, those kinds of words where it's still there for you to return to and you could still slowly build it, but you don't have to. And it does stand on its own rather than, well, there's some unfinished work over here and there's a little more over there and there's some back over there. Oh, so what you say is 
you don't like finishing. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever think there might be some benefits to finishing? But again, if you don't say, like, what's the project? Well, you know you're ever done. If you don't have a project, there's no finishing. Yeah. Have you always been so deliberate? I mean, you seem very deliberate about everything you do. You seem very kind of disciplined. I mean, have you always had that? Or is that something you really had to consciously develop? Uh, That is something I've consciously developed. I've always been really curious about how things work. And then in part, the the little kid in me has never gone away. And I use the creative process to keep that flowing. Kids are natural-born scientists. How does that work? Push on it. Do something or try that. You irritate your father. Like, oh, okay, that worked. And you come back the next day and it's, let's try it again. Does it still work? Yeah, right. <laughs> Do it, are the same consequences the same? Yeah, right. Same rules. Yeah. Well, it's the same kind of testing. Does this work? Does it work consistently? How does it work? If I change something up, how does how does that change the result and the experience? Um, I'm, I've just been tremendously curious, and, and part of this probably comes from growing up with a father who's a fine art photographer, a mother who was a painter who turned graphic designer and produced a lot of books, exhibits, catalogs, all kinds of things for other artists. And so between my father and my mother, we would visit all of these different artists' studios, whether it was Ansel Adams' Darkroom or it was skating on Steichen's Pond or it was going to watch mom oversee or help produce the Stieglitz portrait of O'Keefe with O'Keefe. All, mm. all of these people, just so different. And in so many cases, photographers who were using the same tools but doing things very differently, had different opinions, had different, uh, different lifestyles around this creativity. They would craft a different career, a different lifestyle, a different way of living, a different set of expectations, different goals. They would be pleased about certain things and not others or have their own insecurities. I don't need to take that on. Like You see all of these different people hmm. uh, engaging in it and you realize, okay, there's a lot of ways to do this stuff. And I, I realized that you could be as creative with uh, your lifestyle and your profession as you could with the things that you were making as well. And uh, there were a lot of choices built into that. So I paid attention. And and with that came opportunities. And then thrust myself into the position of having to teach. Mm. And and teaching, sharing that knowledge with people forces you to be really clear. People, your students be like kids. Well, hey, JP, how's that work? Well, I think on Tuesday it works. You, know, you come up with, you try and come up with the best words you can, but you realize you want to think about how this is going to um, fit for the largest number of people. And can you actually help them? I mean, that's that's the guiding one. I, I think so many teachers go and say, well, this is the way it works for me, and they just teach what they do. That's the way you do it, and not necessarily the way they want to do it. And, and your goal isn't to turn them into you. That would disappoint right. everybody, I think. <laughs> you <know? laughs> um, so you have to be much clearer about why you do the things you do, how you do them, and what, what the what the choices are. And then, then you need to start a dialogue with the people that you're working with. So who are you and what do you want to do? And, and what could we do that's going to help energize your process? What kinds of resources can we help claim for you? What can we direct you to? Can we celebrate the things that are strong in your work? And can we amplify that? Can we build on that? How many other new directions can you, can you take from that? And most people don't even ask those questions. And so mm-hmm. they don't see the possibilities. And so much of it is a conversation. I have a conversation with nature. I have a conversation with my work. I have a conversation with myself. I have a conversation with them. And I hope they get the conversation started with all of those things, with themselves, with their medium, with their subject. It's not just a, an equation that you can solve. It's a relationship. Work and art comes out of relationships, the relationships you strike. And those have qualities. Mm-hmm. I think I had read or heard in another interview, you were talking about the role of dreams and visions in your work and your life. I was wondering if you'd mind talking about that, like how they influence your work, how they influence your life, if it's not too personal. No, I'm sure there are ways of talking about it that, that don't have to get that personal. I know I remember in one interview you were talking about how you woke up in the middle of the night and you had kind of like a, a vision of an image and you sketched it out and then somehow or another you eventually kind of found that. And I know you do have a lot of practices around sketching and writing that are also very deliberate that help you process and visualize compositions and images that you're looking for. Sure. 
And we might replace the the word deliberate with specific Mm. because uh, you engage in a process of free association with words deliberately, not trying to finish the sentence. You get a certain kind of information. You get a certain kind of uh, experience, which is very different than writing a paragraph about an image. Yes, uh, a lot of people use dreams to solve challenges. So you can uh, suggest to yourself that uh, you kind of work this out while you're sleeping. And and if you have something to record it with, used to be pen and paper, or sometimes my iPhone now, Mm -hmm. um, nearby, you wake up, more often than not, you'll, you'll have something to add into the mix. Sometimes you'll even have the solution. And people have been using this, well, it's part of the human condition, but in all kinds of disciplines. Mm-hmm. Uh, Edison used to use this all the time. He would deliberately sleep in an armchair with a metal ball in his hand, and he would kind of nod off, and the ball would make a noise, and he'd wake up, and he'd catch some of the ideas in that oh, wow. dream state okay. in between waking and dreaming. Um, he said some of his best ideas came out of that. Interesting. He used to sleep like a wolf, rarely slept eight hours a night or anything like that. He would sleep in fits and starts. So that's been a key thing for you, or it's just been a small part of the puzzle? It's been a piece of the puzzle. And I think what's even more important than this tool of suggesting to your subconscious that something's important and hoping that you can get into a freer state of mind where some of that subconscious richness can well up, connect pieces of the puzzle can be connected outside of what the rational mind would ordinarily do. The whole sensibility for dreams, and I think there are many different kinds of dreams, has been very important to me. And one of the reasons I'm interested in so many primal cultures, I think in many cases, uh, they have a very rich life with their dreams. The Aborigines in Australia consider their dream life more real than their waking life. Mm. They've really flipped it. Wow. Uh, I think that in many cultures, the sacred stories that uh, they tell, that we tell, serve as a collective dream. Mm-hmm. And, and they have many similarities, many psychic functions for identifying what might be most important, how things are connected in a felt way, not necessarily a rational way, a way of integrating in a tangible, sticky way uh, certain kinds of processes, both psychic and physical. That free-flowing way of thinking and some of the questions I still engage with, you need to have to get away from those phrases. I struggle with these questions. Nah, you know, I guess if you're like, uh, what, 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 Elijah was struggling with an angel, <laughs> maybe you don't want that struggle to end. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I engage with uh, those challenges. Um, or live with them. You know, there, there's a very different sense to the type of dream where you're just hashing out yesterday's events. And sometimes you're just tired, but your mind is run on, or it's worried about tomorrow's events, and it's sort of just churning, grinding, which is very different than um, something where some of your concerns, and, and who knows if there's some other dimension that you touch on when you dream, come out more freely. Um, you get down to the essence, and there's more of an insight or an awareness. It's less top mind, more lower mind or gut. And then there are what Jung talks about, the big dreams, the kind of the archetypal dreams, mm-hmm. where, you, where he felt that you would come in contact with uh, maybe what he called the collective unconscious, or at least the patterns would be more archetypal. And it didn't seem to have anything to do with your day-to-day life the day before, uh, but it did seem to have real psychic significance uh, and to sift out the difference between those different qualities of dreaming is quite fascinating and i don't think it's unrelated to sifting out the differences in qualities between images oh yeah that came from the top of the mind it's clever oh yeah this has more of a felt connection oh this is this is something big this has gone beyond me and i better pay attention that's what makes me so curious about how some images resonate with so many people it seems like it must be some kind of collective unconscious in a way or something yeah, I'm convinced that that does happen. It doesn't happen universally, and it's quite fascinating to see. Sometimes you think something's going to hit, and, and, and it doesn't. And other times people will surprise you, and, and a whole bunch of people react with one image that you made. And maybe you just got out of your way and tapped into something and got into the print, or, or maybe there's some meme or archetype or something where a lot of people can relate to it, and you wonder, because you hadn't intended it that way. Um, 
I'm wondering just with the group of images that's in this room and the two days that you had your studio open, was there anything that comes to mind, a reaction or something that someone said or some kind of consistency? Several. A comment? Well, several. I mean, I can point to the one that sold the most, and I'm very glad that it did sell the most because it uh, is one of my favorite images. Uh, it has a, a very uh, Asian sensibility. I'm definitely influenced by Chinese and Japanese brush painting, and that is what I was thinking about while I was making the images and my love of those and haiku. And I think it got into the work and uh, other people related to it. But there are a few others, and I, I really value this one comment, and it's been echoed by one or two people, not as many people. Uh, it's this stone that I used for the uh, poster mm-hmm. and the cover of the book. Somebody said something like, uh, it looks back at you. You know, the stone looks back at you. And yeah. I know that, I know that uh, a dear friend of mine said, you know, that's the one that started a conversation with me. Oh. And that conversation is continuing. And it's the quality of that observation and the the depth of, 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 of where it took them that I, I really appreciate. And to some degree, that's a fulfillment of, of, of a personal goal. I wanted to have those experiences. It was nice they had those kinds of experiences with me and that got into the work. I think that transcends, looks familiar, or has a certain gestalt. There's the start of the continuing experience that might get to some of those deeper levels that we talked about. Mm. Yeah. I mean, is that not the ideal with any piece of art is that you would hang something in your house and have an ongoing conversation with it over years and keep wanting to look at it every day? That's the work that I appreciate most. Um, I, I get away from absolutes or, you know, absolute maxims. This, this is the way that it works, but yeah, right. that, that is one of the qualities I um, appreciate most. And I marvel at some of the primitive artifacts, primal artifacts that uh, I've seen in museum collections where an old rough piece of wood and a handful of nails becomes this figure that just looks you right back in the eyes mm-hmm. with such crude means, such presence is created and it still persists long after the creator is gone. That's fascinating. And it's very interesting to create an object where you walk in the room, you, you can't get it out of the, you can't get it off your mind. Even if you turn your back on it, you feel like something's watching. <laughs> I'm like, how does that happen? Yeah. And there's a real difference in, in some of the, the Buddhas that I've seen over in Japan where some are just beautifully crafted, but there are others that look back at you. <laughs> how does that happen? Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in making work that looks back at me. And I want to see myself. I want to encounter the object. I had a great time. Great encounter the subject. I had a great time making the thing. But when work persists and kind of takes on a life of its own and looks back at you and keeps that conversation going, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity for increased depth. I really am much more interested in depth than volume or mm-hmm. so many of the other external validation signposts that we can seek. I don't think it's always easy to describe when that depth happens, but it is really nice when you meet somebody, then you can share that and, and have some kind of community or conversation or confirmation. That, hey, you're not totally crazy. Yeah. <laughs> or like you said with your piano teacher, you're being made aware of a depth that you didn't know about. Yes. Yeah. Really exciting. Yeah. So there's a whole lot more to this than I ever understood. Fantastic. Well, that's, I mean, that's definitely an exciting thing about life in general is that it's there's no end to all the things you can learn or know about or experience right um people which is why i hope you know when people listen to this they're not listening to photoshop commands and f-stops and iso (laughs) settings they're not looking for that i hope you know (laughs) that the physician or the mechanic uh could find something interesting if they if they listen a little more flexibly yeah oh yeah i could actually use that oh this is interesting it's about yeah. the human spirit. It's about creativity, which we all have, but in very different ways. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. It really pains me sometimes to hear when people say that they're not creative. Right. I mean, I know you probably feel that pain, too, because you know it's not true. But, I mean, they have limiting beliefs, I suppose. People have limiting beliefs about that. Yeah, I don't let that translate into pain, but I, I, hope, <laughs> I hope for more for them. And I can... If we just have a few minutes of conversation, I can dispel that pretty quickly. Yeah. 
What what would you say to me if I said that to you? Like I'm not creative. You're not creative. <laughs> <laughs> Dispel that for me. Well, the first thing I would do is say, look at the set of questions there. It took a fair amount of creativity just to write down those questions, oh, sure. those types of questions in that specific order, and it also reflects your concerns. So not only are you creative, but you're creative in a specific way, and it shows in the things that you do. And that would be for starters. Yeah. And then if we have to prove it to you, let's right. let's do some creative <laughs> exercise. You know, let's play a game real quick. I think people might be limited in the way they think about creativity. It's like if you're not much. drawing or painting or taking a photograph, you might think you're not being creative. But if you're raising children or taking care of a household or cooking or I mean, there's so many things you can do that there's some creativity there. Whereas, yeah, it's problem solving. Yeah, but it's also doing it in a spirited way. And I think one of the big challenges of our time is to figure out how to describe different qualities of uh, participation. You know, there's an art to slicing bread these days. Well, is it really art? Okay, or maybe we need a different word to describe the kind of art that goes into building the or painting the Sistine Chapel or um, St. Francis's uh, the, at Assisi. Yeah. Giotto's frescoes in Assisi are one of the most radiant art experiences I've ever had. And that's an entirely different thing than the art of chopping a salad. Yeah. You know, I think there's a difference between well-crafted and, uh, sure. and really fully inspired after engaging with something on all levels. And there's everything in between as well. So just to throw these blanket statements like creativity, art, or photography at things, well, well like what kind? What kind of creativity? What kind of photography? Yeah, I remember you were saying something about that in one of your talks about how limiting the word photography is. Right. And at the same time, I think we can participate with things in a more open state of mind, which opens up the opportunity for many different kinds of solutions. And uh, we can learn a whole set of skills for opening up even more possibilities and then make some interesting choices that might reflect our concerns or, or the needs of a certain situation uh, more sensitively, and, and that's being fairly creative. Now, how much more do you want to add into it? Um, I'm not saying that your salad needs to be the same as a Bach cantata. <laughs> but, you know, you can be pretty creative with what you do, with how you make the food, how you serve it, how you eat it while you're eating with your family, particularly if there are kids involved. Yeah. <laughs> or if we can be more childlike, not childish, childlike. Mm-hmm. And it was Bob, Bob Dylan, Picasso, so many other people, Blake, celebrate the importance of uh, that more youthful mindset. It's the same kind of thing in a lot of Asian thinking, beginner's mind. You know, so how, how do you end up being old but still have beginner's mind? Or just be humble and not assume that you know everything. That's the, that's the starting point. Right there. So we've learned an enormous amount, and, and we've all individually accomplished a fair amount. But there's so much more. So just being open to new ways, other possibilities, without necessarily, again, being threatened. Doesn't mean what you're doing is wrong or inadequate or just there are other possibilities. Be aware of them. Make the choices you want to make. Isn't meditation kind of an important part of your life, too? It's huge. Yeah, I've had a practice since I was in high school. And there's a lot of different ways to meditate. I think it's uh, it's a skill, and you can get better at it. It's um, a practice that can help you control your mind and sometimes your emotions, as well as your body. And the control freak in me loves that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's, it's, you know, for somebody who's got a fairly active mind, mm. <laughs> and I'm being diplomatic... Um, it's very useful to be able to turn it off sometimes or to be able to say, okay, enough of that. Let's try something else. Or just to have the awareness to know that you might need to shift gears. Just to have the awareness that you're fairly wound up. You might want to just calm down a little bit. Or to, to have the capacity to just turn it off, which is tough, but possible. Yeah, I mean, especially if you have an active mind, it must take a lot of practice. Especially, but most everybody's mind just keeps on going. I mean, most of the buddhist yeah teachings right. to say it's going to do what it's going to do the thing is not getting caught up with it yeah 
But there are times where you can literally slow it down, increase the space in between thoughts, get into a different space, a different mindset. And that's a great deal of it, to, to be able to make mindset a choice rather than a reaction. And I think in many ways, any creative discipline will help with that as well. And you'll be able to get into many different kinds of mindsets if you don't think that photography leads to one mindset, but is a door to many different kinds of mindsets, depending on how you interact with it. Music could be the same. Writing could be the same. In some ways, meditation is doing one thing, just focusing on that one thing and being fully present. So really, you, like it, you could call anything art, and you could call anything a form of meditation if you did it in a specific way. I think that probably is the difference between whether something is done artfully or not. If we could get into a big philosophical discussion about what's the difference between skill and art, we don't need to go there right now. Yeah. But I think our culture does. Hmm. We've been using a lot of words. It would really help other people if they used words as well. Words to put edges around their ways of thinking. Uh, words to expand their ways of thinking and their possibilities. And, and words hmm. to help them focus their lives, and their activities, in ways that would be most fulfilling to them. So if we go back to where we started, if everybody had a mission, set of goals, a few projects, mm. and broke those projects down into actionable next steps, and just wrote those things down, it would help a great deal. I recommend writing them in pencil, not in stone. <laughs> <laughs> I usually think that most... <laughs> I agree with Ben Franklin. Planning not to plan is planning to flail. But yeah. I also agree with Paul Allen. You've got to work with your plan. You've got to work your plan. So I find that the best plans evolve. So write it in pencil. But do write it. Because if you write it down, you're 72% more likely to take action on it. Latest neuroscience. Mm -hmm. If you type it out, 39%. But that'll help too. It's useful to carve a little time away from all of the other demands and, and to find some clarity on how you'd like to shape your life and to find ways of being creative in a way that energizes. Inspiration means to breathe. You know, breathe new life into it. Energize it. Open, open things up and expand possibilities. Not because you have to try them all, but because being aware of that, more choices, better choices. Hopefully not choice paralysis. Yeah. Just conscious, I choose to do this. There, there's tremendous power in, in committing to one thing and seeing it through. Usually takes a little bit of connecting the mind with the gut and the heart, and usually the mind needs words to hold the focus. It can be wonderful that way. If it just rules the show and there's no more room left for the surprise, the inspiration, the emotional response, the, all, all the other things that are going to mess up that plan and you're going to have to rewrite the plan, <laughs> then, then the mind's taking over too much. But it can be a tremendous, tremendous ally if it can help give direction. How do you recommend dealing with fear and doubt? <laughs> so I feel like that's kind of where I am right now. I feel very empty and kind of unsure of what's next. Well, and that may not be a bad thing. I'm trying to see it as a positive place right? to be. Right. There's, there's opportunity there. The, the challenge of that would be if, if you just stayed there and, and you didn't ultimately end up doing something, like do something, um, then, it, then it would become a problem. But it, that state opens up a lot of possibilities. Yeah. So I think one question to live by is, is it helpful? So you could ask yourself, is what you're doing helpful? Are you, is, is the way that you're doing it helpful? Would there be something else that you could do or some other way of doing it that would be more helpful? Th then, then things start to get a lot clearer. You know, we're never going to be perfect. None of us ever. <laughs> never going to be. <laughs> I don't even like that word. <laughs> I, I don't either. Actually, I'm, I'm trying to understand some of the wisdom that, you know, so many, so many great sacred artifacts are, are made with some little imperfection in them. And there's this notion that they do that so people don't confuse it with the actual divine thing that mm. they're trying to portray. But I think there's more to it. I think Leonard Cohen's got something, you know, it's the cracks that let the light in. I yeah. think there's some of the imperfection that adds more life into the whole thing that leads a certain kind of perspective and a certain quality of vibration that's important. 
So I'm a control freak. I am a perfectionist, and I'm suspicious of that. I'm not sure that always serves me. I'm not sure that's always helpful. So I'm asking, when is it helpful? How is it helpful? When is it not helpful? How is it not helpful? And just start making some observations. And then just make the next thing. Find your way. Very nice. Do you have any parting words just if you're thinking about any artists that might be out there listening to this who might feel that the life of an artist is kind of daunting? I mean, there is, you know, you could talk about the starving artist myth, but there are a lot of artists who do struggle for years uh, doing the same thing or exploring. And it's a hard... um, it's a hard path to take sometimes. Has it ever felt like that for you? It's always a hard path to take. I think it's challenging for everybody, no matter whether you're enjoying tremendous success or or live a life where you never see it in your lifetime or ever. First and foremost, I, I think you have to understand that it's a, it's a life choice, a lifestyle choice. If it's just a career, it's probably a lousy career choice. And one of the things you really need to liberate yourself from is... Um, other people's expectations and the way that you shoulder those, you really need to define success for yourself and separately from the reactions of other people. If you're waiting to publish the book or get collected by Museum X or all of those things that depend on other people, you need to reframe success for yourself. You can't control them, nor should you really want to. You could hope that they would come along for the ride. Define success for yourself and then focus on making sure that happens you can control that you can get involved in that and make make those things happen it is very challenging don't go into it lightly (laughs) yeah there may be other things that you need to do to feed that creative habit but i think everyone would benefit not just artists everyone would benefit from having some kind of creative outlet in their life some space and time and i think that's the great luxury is having the time to really develop this fully and if you feel that you need a lot of time to do that find some way to uh make that happen Uh, some a lot of artists would shy away from find a way to monetize that get over it you you gotta have an edge you gotta have a way to support yourself right it's not about selling out it's about making sure that what you're doing is sustainable if you can't feed yourself, you can't go in for the long haul. I mean, you make the distinction between commercial work or not. Or, you know, There's all kinds of challenges that you'll run into, and not everybody's going to solve it the same way. And I would say stop looking for the way to do it. There is no one way. I've spent a lot of time when I was young mm. uh, trying to figure this out. You know, Some people had gone before me, and they'd, done, they'd made it work, but that wasn't working for me. The times had changed, and I was different. You have to find your way. And in many ways, if you decide to be a professional artist, you have to be as creative about your business, which is a lifestyle, as you are about the things that you produce. Uh, and and don't expect it to uh, stay the same all the time. You're going to change. The climate is going to change. You have to be flexible. Stay open. Look for other opportunities. And sometimes the things that you think aren't really serving you ultimately end up providing growth in certain areas that you never anticipated. Teaching has been one of those things for me. Mm. Uh, So yes, teaching takes me away from all the hours that I could put into making the next piece, but it also lends a great deal of clarity about the creative process, better skills, better clarity around all of that, and ultimately ways to monetize my life so that I can go out and make the next piece or gets me to Antarctica or uh, there's so many other things that I could cite like the 50 conversations that I've had with other photographers artists didn't anticipate that uh, becoming part of uh, my life but those Mm. kinds of conversations have been tremendously influential to me some of those people have been great friends gone on influenced my life in all kinds of other ways there are all kinds of byproducts out of the things that we do. Andy Warhol was a children's book illustrator for a little while before he started doing (laughs) (laughs) boxes of uh, detergent and other kinds of things. You know, like Ansel Adams did portraiture. Most artists had some form of commercial endeavor. Mm -hmm. Other people make their their money some other way and buy their creative time another another way. Find your way. Yeah. There isn't one way and 
things are different today and you're different. So craft your own life, craft your own career. Uh, but I would say never, never doubt yourself. I mean, it's good to have a little bit of doubt Say, is this really my path? Am I really doing the best work I can? How relevant is it to X, Y, or Z? But at the end of the day, I mean, you're a human being, tremendously valuable, extraordinarily unique with an amazing moment in time with never been more opportunity, Hmm. opportunity to do so many things in so many ways and to connect with so many people in so many ways. I mean, it's, uh, we're back to that embarrassment of riches these days and, and some paralysis. Like, oh, oh my God, there's so yeah. much to do. I can't really do it all. Right. You can't do it all. Choose what you want to do. Choose what feeds you. Craft the life that was going to make the best you. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate everything that you said. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to share it with other folks. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, all right. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and colleagues and consider giving it a review on iTunes. That could help others find it and motivate them to give it a try. At austinarttalk.com, you can visit each episode's webpage to find links related to the relevant and interesting people, places, and things mentioned by each guest. And thanks to those who have reached out with encouragement and positive feedback. I really appreciate it. All the best to you and take care. Take care.